Good morning. Welcome to Eastern Shore Baptist Church's podcast. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm so thrilled that you have decided to tune in this week. I certainly hope that today's message will be both encouraging to you, but also I pray that it will be convicting. You can find out more about our church by visiting www.myesbc.net. God bless you and look forward to seeing you soon at church. If you want to, you can fill in this top blank of your sermon outline. Do we react in the heat of the moment or with the heart of God? Do we react in the heat of the moment or with the heart of God? One of my favorite authors is Stephen Covey. Of course, he's a a famed author and speaker. He was writing uh, on one Sunday morning on a New York subway. Of course, even on Sunday mornings in New York, the subways are generally fairly empty. And he was reading his paper, and he was thinking about uh, where he was going, what he was going to be doing that day. And the quietness that he was experiencing on that subway was shattered when a large family, a father and several children, uh, came onto the subway, and they sat down, and they were making a huge, huge racket. Uh, For the better part of 10, 15 minutes, these kids were out of control, and their father was seemingly absent-minded about what was going on uh, with his kids. And finally, Covey had had enough of it, and he went over to the father, and he asked him, he said, you know, could you do me a favor? Would you mind controlling your children? They're being a huge distraction. They're being terribly obnoxious. Uh, It's upsetting everyone. And so the the father looked up at Stephen Covey, and tears began to stream down his face. He says, I'm I'm so sorry. He goes, to be honest with you, I'm I'm a little bit out of it. I'm, I'm in shock. He said, my wife just died about a half hour ago. And my children and I, we just left the hospital. And and my kids are not handling that situation very well. And and to be honest with you, I I really am not sure exactly what to do. And so Covey, who's also a born-again believer, he, of course, his heart broke in that situation. Put himself in in the father's shoes, and he could only imagine what it would be like to lose a loved one just moments after uh, that person had passed away. You know, as I read that story, it it really hit me that sometimes it helps to slow down. It helps uh, for us to put ourselves in the shoes of other people. It's beneficial when we try to be more considerate and we began to ponder the experiences of other people that are surrounding us. Why do they act that way? Another great uh, thing that came out of the 1990s when I was a kid, this phrase, what would Jesus do? And people began to have the, the bracelets. Remember those silicone bands? And people began to try to live their life by that, that common statement, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond? Instead, we often, by the way, me included, instead we often fly off the handle at situations we don't fully understand. We judge each other very quickly and many times we judge each other with the wrong attitude or the wrong heart. We, we replace that, that, uh, that fleshly heart that Jesus gives to us, that tender heart, we often replace with that stone heart that we are born with, right? in those situations. This morning, we're going to be addressing a lot of these matters about the judgments that we often make, uh, whether it be to ourselves or certainly when we judge other people. If you want to, you can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 45. As you do that, I'd like to share with you the context of the passage that we're studying this morning. Jesus is talking about judging our enemies 
forgiving our enemies, and of course, lending to our enemies. When he says to give and it will be given to you, he isn't saying that when we give to those that we think are our enemies, that our enemies are going to give back to us. Hardly. When we give to our enemies, we should be giving with the expectation that we would receive nothing in return, at least nothing uh, of this earth. But when Jesus says, give it, it'll be given unto you, what he's saying is when we give to those people that we think are our enemies, well, what Jesus is saying is, hey, there's going to be a heavenly reward for those attitudes. We aren't to expect anything in return for our generosity, but God will give it back, and he'll give it back even more than what we gave. He also tells us to be faithful to obey him. Jesus is teaching his disciples that, and of course us, that we will be repaid. There is a reward for what we do uh, here on earth in the name of the Lord. In generosity toward our enemies, uh, we can't outgive God. And, that, and that's a great rule to know, that when we give to other people, whether they be our friends or our enemies, that we cannot outgive God, that the reward will never run out. So let's dive back into Luke chapter 6, verses 37 uh, through 45 this morning, and let's look at some of these really interesting statements that Jesus gives about judging and lending and giving if you will, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them this parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly be able to see to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs were not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the man's mouth speaks." So, uh, three very brief points about making good judgments. So, if you think about making judgments in this world, what are the judgments that we are talking about? So, making good judgments requires, Roman numeral one, humility. Making a good judgment requires humility. By the way, this statement that Jesus gives is perhaps the most wrongly quoted scripture in the entire Bible. This particular verse has been twisted by people to justify all sorts of sins. We hear statements like, uh, Jesus says that you can't judge me, right? Thus giving credence to all sorts of bad behavior and wrongdoing and sinful acts. It, it must have been a real problem. Uh, even back in Paul's day, clearly it was a problem in Jesus' day. It continues in Paul's day because he addressed the nature of sin in Romans chapter 6. And you can read it most likely along the screens with me. In Romans 6 verses 1 through 4, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Now how can we who died to sin still live in it? 
And do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him about baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I'm sure that even in Paul's day, there were people running around doing all sorts of sin while claiming the protective shelter of God's grace. You cannot judge me. Jesus says that, right? Every sinner in the Bible would say, oh my goodness, that is my life verse. (laughs) Oh man, Uh, you can't judge me. Well, friends, context is everything, obviously. Yes, Jesus says to judge not. And he's clearly speaking to his father, but you all, uh, to his followers, but you also have to remember who else was in the audience. Uh, namely, there was a group called the Pharisees. Jesus would later call these Pharisees whitewashed tombs. They looked awesome on the outside. They were very righteous and pious and holy on the outside. And they, yet they would stand on the foundation of their self-proclaimed righteousness and man-made holiness and pronounce judgment upon everybody else that didn't meet their standard. Not a biblical standard, not a God standard, but their man-made standard of righteousness. Jesus, in fact, was specifically speaking to these people. What gave them the right to judge sinners? And the answer is clear. They didn't have the right to judge sinners. Next, you have to look at the word judge. Uh, The Greek word for judge is krano. It's K-R-E-N-O. The word actually means to rule or to govern. The actual definition of the word is this, is to preside over with the power of giving a judicial decision because it was the prerogative of kings and rulers to pass judgment. What Jesus is saying is that no man, or woman for that matter, has the right to sit in ultimate authority over anyone else. We humans don't have the authority to pass out condemnation. We don't have the authority to pass out judgment or eternal punishment. The only person who has that job is God. And how do I know this? How do I know that God is our ultimate judge? He's the only one fit to judge my life and your life. Well, again, I go back to the Bible. The Bible tells me so. In Psalm verse, uh, chapter uh, 75, verse 7, but God is the judge with a capital J, by the way. He puts down one and exalts another. Then Isaiah 33, verse 22, listen to what Isaiah says. Uh, the, the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king, and he will save us. James, some New Testament, by the way. James 4, verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, both with a capital L and a capital J, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge, little j, your neighbor? Again, another New Testament verse, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. I know that, by the way, it's hard to believe that men or or people in general would unknowingly unseat God from his rightful place as judge only to pass condemnation on another human being. It may be hard to believe, but it happened before Jesus. It happened during Jesus' ministry. And friends, it's continuing to happen even today. We make, in most cases, snap judgments concerning people based on their outward appearances, their past the country they come from, the religion they practice, their preferences of living, uh, 
their race, and we decide whether or not we will associate with that person based on those matters. In many cases, we decide whether or not the gospel is even good enough for that person based on those matters. Anytime we curse someone, anytime we give them the old number one in a fit of rage, anytime we tell someone to go to the particular spiritual hotspot, we judge them. Anybody ever guilty of that? We may not realize that we're doing it, but the reality is that's what we're doing. Jesus is the judge. He's the rightful judge, and it is only he who can see into someone's heart and soul and know that, a person, uh, know that person better than they know themselves. Jesus alone makes eternal judgments on man, not me and not you. So if we're not to judge, what should we do? Well, Jesus responds with the answer to that question. Now, I am going to circle back down here in just a moment in that third point about fruit. And so we are going to talk a little bit about fruit here in just a moment. But Jesus does give us the answer. If we're not supposed to judge, Jesus gives us a declarative statement of what we ought to be doing instead. He says, condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So we are to condemn not, forgive, and give. Those are three really good things. So instead of judging other people by their actions, by their sin, we ought to be doing what Jesus tells us to do quite clearly, to condemn not, forgive, and give. Jesus is just circling back to his earlier statements about how we are to love our enemies. We don't stand in judgment over them because we're just sinners ourselves. Rather, we forgive them, we give to them, not expecting anything in return out of the charity that the Holy Spirit has given to us, and we love them. So some people might be listening either online or here today in this audience, and you might be thinking to yourself, it sounds like the preacher won't condemn sinners. He must be preaching to condone sinners. So if I'm preaching not to condemn sinners, then am I preaching to say, well, sin's okay? Well, clearly not. We should be the model, the example that Jesus has given to us, to them. My dad taught me a long time ago. I was a teenager, and I was saying things teenagers would often say about a certain group of people. And my dad was driving in the car. I think we were going to the grocery store. And he taught me this really great phrase. He said, well, son, have you ever thought about this? Maybe we should hate the sin and what? You remember? Love the sinner. Maybe we should hate the sin and love the sinner. Because the reality is, is that's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus didn't hate me. He hated my sin. He allowed my sin to nail him on a cross. He didn't hate me. He loved me. Instead of casting me away, he brings me closer to him. Remember, it's not God's mission to condemn and destroy, but rather to save and restore. Again, going back to the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 17, listen to what Jesus says. God sent his son of the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Follow Christ's example of patience and love towards the sinner. God does not uh, want 
any human to perish. He wants them to respond and love the gospel message. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. Isn't it great, by the way, that we serve a, 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 a God, a Lord, that wants every single person on planet earth to come to know him and has provided a pathway for that person to come to know him? That's an amazing thing. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I believe that we absolutely should hate sin. Clearly, Jesus hates sin. But I, I think we should absolutely love the sinner. It doesn't mean that we tolerate sin. It doesn't mean that we don't speak the truth in love. Certainly we do. But when we pass uh, judgment, it should never be an eternal condemnation of a person. We don't have the right to send anyone to hell. We don't have the right to send anyone to heaven. That's God's job. Our job is simply to tell the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So making good judgment, it requires humility born out of 37 and 38 verses. But Roman numeral two is capability. A capable person has to make good judgments. If you remember, he begins talking about blind men. He begins talking about logs and specks that we ought to be pulling out of each other's eyes. It reminds me of a really interesting story about a Russian. His name was Leonid Rogozov. I'm going to call him Leo just for short. Uh, Leo was a doctor. He was on a Russian expedition to the polar region of Antarctica some many years ago. And while on the expedition, Leo developed symptoms of a badly swollen appendix. The only problem was that he was the only doctor on the expedition. There were no other nurses, no other medically trained staff. He was the only person. Well, as Leo's appendix begins to swell, it also uh, faces the danger of rupturing. And he was in tremendous pain. And so they sent word back to Russia, hoping that maybe there would be a ship that would come. But while they were in Antarctica, the, the oceans began to freeze. And they were unable to get anything out. Uh, what was thought was that the nearest ship to them would take almost a year to get to where they were. So Leo was in, desperate, in a desperate situation. So he was on his own practically, and he was dying. And so instead of dying, he got to work. He, by the way, this Russian doctor, was the very first person that we know of to perform surgery on himself. Using mirrors and using some help, Leo, this Russian doctor, he uh, uh, cut, him, cut himself open, and he removed his entire lower intestine, got in and found his appendix and took it out and then put everything back and sewed himself up. How many of you would like to sign up for that assignment? Anybody? I don't think so. Sometimes, by the way, I wish it were that easy to remove sin from my life. It doesn't sound easy, but boy, don't you wish you could do something like that? Just perform surgery on yourself. Just find the problem, pull out the scalpel and get, get to work. Well, clearly it's not easy, it's, isn't, it, but, but yet when you think about our life, isn't it funny that, that so many of us try to do that to ourselves? After, after all, finding flaws in ourselves is easy, but you know it's even easier? Finding flaws in other people. You ever notice that? It's way easier to find flaws in someone else than it is in my own life. I've been guilty, and probably you have too, about trying to take out a scalpel, and instead of carving out the problem, the cancerous areas uh, that hide within our own lives, boy, it's a lot easier to try to carve those areas out of other people. 
One of my primary callings as a pastor is to be there for people who are hurting and suffering. And so this means that I'm at hospitals on a regular basis. I feel like I live at hospitals, which I, I, I do. I'm there all the time. Just the other day, I was looking back at the last month of all the, the hospital visitations that I had made to see people. I, I keep a record, by the way, of all the people that I go and see and visit so that I can remember to pray for them and, and, uh, and continue to think about them. And just last month, I, I visited various hospitals and nursing homes and rehabilitation centers. I went there 38 times in a month. That's a lot of hospital visits. And it's a great joy for me to, to go and pray for those that have been hospitalized and are about to have surgery. I dare say most of us in this room at some point in our life have had a surgical procedure. And surgery is scary. And you're trusting another human being, albeit skilled and educated, to cut us open and remove all sorts of things. There are those of us that have trusted doctors with our eyes. We've trusted doctors with our ears. We've trusted doctors with our backs. We've trusted doctors to, to remove organs out of our bodies. And then we've trusted doctors to place organs back in our bodies. Some of you have even trusted doctors with your heart, others of your brain. The, one of the areas of the Hippocratic Oath says to do no harm. And we have faith that a doctor is going to do that. He's going to do no harm to us. Imagine for just a second that you are going into renal failure. Tommy's been there. Imagine for just a second you were going into renal failure. Your, your kidneys were shutting down and your body was going to experience all the symptoms of that horrible diagnosis. Now, instead of going to have surgery from a trained professional, you decided to have surgery yourself. How do you think that procedure would go? I imagine that most of us would not be able to perform a physical surgery, surgery on ourselves. Now, uh, imagine that you weren't having renal failure, but somebody else was having renal failure. And you recognized all the symptoms that come along with that. And so instead of imploring that person to go to a doctor, you said, no, 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 I'll do the procedure for you. I read a medical journal last night. I, I talked to a doctor uh, on the phone. I watched a YouTube video. I feel like I'm qualified to remove your kidney. How do you think that procedure would go? Probably not very well. Friends, unless you've been to medical school, unless you've been trained under an expert and demonstrated surgical precision for a number of years, you are not qualified to perform surgery either on yourself or anyone else. And what Jesus is talking about here in verses 39 through 42 is spiritual surgery. Spiritual surgery. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when you yourself don't see the log in your eye? We're talking a spiritual surgery here. What makes us think that we are qualified for one moment to perform spiritual surgery on another human being when we ourselves are are suffering from spiritual sickness. Jesus calls this sort of arrogance hypocrisy, and everyone, including me, is guilty of it. Understand, by the way, that my life has benefited by the careful helping hands of men and women who've lovingly, uh, humbly, 
helped me find the problem areas of my life and aided me in removing that sin. We are all the beneficiaries, every person in this room, we are all the beneficiaries of someone else's faith, discipline, and discipleship. Yes, those people were sinners like me, but they approached me in a humble and meek way. They loved me enough to deliver to me the truth, even when the truth sometimes hurts. Jesus, by the way, is not talking about these sorts of people. He's specifically referring to those who carry the weight of sin, feel no remorse over that sin, and are happy in pointing out the sin in other people. There's no humility, there's no conviction, only righteous indignation that leads to haughty arrogance and hypocrisy. So what should we do when we encounter sin in our life or sin in others? My best answer is to let God's word do the convicting and let us do the loving. And trust me, I believe that God's word is the sharpest scalpel that can remove any area of sin from my life. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, look at what The author of Hebrews tells us, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It's what? It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. God's word is the sharpest scalpel able to remove cancerous sin. It's able to perform spiritual surgery that we are not necessarily qualified to do. And remember, our job is to humbly understand our role in loving, discipling, and disciple-making. Our role is to practice what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling what? The word of truth. Again, Paul is telling us, listen, we don't, we don't do the surgery. Allow God's word to do the surgery. You handle God's word in a righteous, loving, caring, compassionate way. So we make good judgments with our humility. We make good judgments through our capability. And then the last one is this. We make good ju- judgments through our perceptibility. We have to have a good perception, a good handle on things. We have to have a clear vision. Again, Jesus tells us in verse 43 and 45, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Man, we're talking about fruit. My wife, by the way, is just a great cook. She is a great cook. She's tremendous at it, in fact. Angela is very talented at cooking, and I am the proof of her talent. She's also a whiz in the grocery store. She attacks the grocery store. She attacks Walmart and Publix with the preparation and the precision of a general. I've never seen anything like it. I guarantee you she's not the only one. When I go into a grocery store, I am hopelessly and completely lost. But not her. She knows exactly what she wants, and she goes at it with a laser to get it. One thing, by the way, that I've never been good at in a grocery store is picking fruit. I've never ever been able to figure out how to pick fruit. Generally, when I go to a grocery store, the fruit that I pick, it's either not ripe it's, or too ripe. 
I never seem to get it right there in that sweet spot. But Angela has somehow been able to figure out how to find fruit and get it right there in its sweet spot. I've seen her do all kinds of techniques. Have y'all ever done the shake? Why, why we shake our fruit to determine its ripeness, I don't, I don't know. I, I've seen thumping. You ever seen the thump? Okay. Don't do that to a grape. You'll send it right across the room. Okay. But she deploys all these types of things to judge the, the ripeness of fruit. She is a great judge of fruit. Now, I know when something is spoiled, but I have a hard time determining when something is ripe. I guess I'm still developing as a fruit inspector, but not her. So my question for you today is this. Are you like my wife or are you like me? Are you a good fruit inspector? Are you a good fruit inspector? She's a great fruit inspector. Me, not so much. Now, spiritually speaking, go back to Jesus' words. Are you a good fruit inspector or are you a bad fruit inspector? Jesus is clearly telling his followers that they were to change their perception of how they were looking at people. Judging others as the final authority is clearly wrong. Jesus is very clear in that, right? Judge not, lest you be judged. So clearly, we have to deal with that. However, Jesus then opens the door to some other type of inspection. Clearly, we have opportunities to look at each other's lives, but in verses 43 through 45, Jesus offers further explanation to what he's already said. Sure, we're not to be judgmental as the Jews had become. However, we are to evaluate the spiritual quality of those who know Christ by inspecting the fruit being produced from their lives. We are to know them by their fruit, Jesus says. So what is the knowable fruit? I really started to do a, a bit of a word study. It was a very uh, theological study. Uh, I got online and went into Google and typed fruit in the Bible, okay? Very theological, okay? No one else is capable of doing a search like that. You have to go to seminary to know how to do that, okay? Fruit in the Bible. And that's how I type, just like this, like a T-Rex, Okay? And as I began to do this word study, I began to, to see all the different types of fruit that you can find in the Bible, spiritual fruit. So what kind of fruit should we be inspecting? Really fast, let's go through these. A, the fruit of repentance. That's the first step, by the way, in knowing Jesus is to repent. Matthew 3, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Then there's letter B, the fruit of abiding that we ought to be attached to Jesus, right? John 15, verses 1 and 2. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be what? More fruitful, okay? More fruitful. Then there's letter C, the fruit of giving. The fruit of giving. We should be givers of our time, our talents, our treasures, our resources, our energy. The fruit of giving is one of the primary ways that we know that someone is in the faith by how generous they are. The fruit of giving, Matthew 7, verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. A tree, by the way, is meant to be productive. My mom, I was just over hanging out with my mom and dad the other day, 
at their house. And they planted some Satsuma trees a few years ago. I didn't know much about Satsumas until I moved here to the eastern shore, but I know that it takes time for Satsumas to bear fruit. And my mom was really excited. She said, finally, this tree that I planted years ago is starting to bear fruit. A tree is supposed to bear fruit. But yet Jesus tells us that if it's a tree is not bearing fruit, if it's not giving, if it's not being generous, then it's to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then there's Paul's words, the fruit of the Spirit, letter D. Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. Oh, I love my grandfather, my, my dad's dad. Now, my grandfather was a lifelong Church of Christ. Boy, he was committed to that denomination. Sadly, one of the, the, the great pains of his life was that I was deciding to become a Baptist minister. Now, if you know anything about being Church of Christ, you know that in order to go to heaven, you have to be Church of Christ. And so being outside of that denomination, it just gave my grandfather fits. Now, we agreed on everything when it came uh, to, to faith and to Jesus but I remember one time my grandfather told me, he said, Stuart, I'm just really concerned. I'm really concerned that, that you're not going to go to heaven with me and that as a Baptist pastor, because you're not Church of Christ, you're leading other people to hell with you. Now, imagine for a moment if your grandfather had told you that. This is a man that I love and respect. And by the way, learned myself so many of the great spiritual benefits of my life from my grandfather. But one of the things I told my grandfather, I said, you know, his, I called him Papa. We call him Papa D. I said, Papa D, I just don't see how you can say that. I don't see how you could look at my life. I, I'm not perfect. I, I understand that. But I said, Papa D, how can you look at my life and say that you think I'm going to hell when clearly I'm producing fruit? Just go back. Papa D, look at Galatians chapter 5. Can't you see in areas of my life that I'm producing the fruit and keeping of being a believer in Jesus Christ? Am I not showing patience and joy? I mean, don't you see some of these things? Well, friend, maybe uh, I, I really believe that my grandfather had the most sincerest intention. And, and really what he said, it caused me to look at my own life. And perhaps if you ever wonder, like, you know, maybe you struggle. Do you ever struggle, by the way, with whether or not you're saved? I mean, has that ever been something that people battle with? Some people battle with it. One, for those of you that might struggle with that, I always say, well, go back. Do you, do, is your life producing fruit? Is it producing the fruit of repentance? Is it producing fruit of, of giving? Is it producing fruit here of the Spirit? Do you see your name written in some of these comments? Because if you are apart from Jesus, you cannot produce these things. Did you know that? If you are apart from Jesus, it is impossible for you to produce the fruit of being with Jesus. Then there's letter E, the fruit of light. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. The fruit of praise, one of my favorites. Last one, letter F. Hebrews 13. For we have, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come through him. Then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. How awesome is that? 
Are you deploying the fruit of praise in your life? For sure, we must avoid the spiritual pitfalls of becoming judgmental. Nothing destroys kingdom life and blocks kingdom growth quite like a judgmental heart. Nothing sullies God's reputation more on planet earth than self-righteous, pain-in-the-neck, busybody believers sticking their opinion into everybody else's business. But if we're going to protect God's family from false believers and false teachers, if we're going to extort and admonish one another on towards growth in grace and the character in Christ, and if we're going to call out a lost world to love God, we can't shy away from inspecting each other's fruit. We have to be good fruit inspectors. A good place to start, by the way, a good place to start is by inspecting your own fruit before you inspect the fruit of someone else. That in itself, by the way, will guard you and me and everybody else against being falsely, unrighteously judgmental. Martin Luther, uh, author of the 95 Theses and several other works and the start of the Protestant Reformation, look at these closing words. Good works do not make a good man but a good man does good works. Martin Luther is saying, if you're a good man, you're going to produce good fruit. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?